Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Arkansas Representative Nicole Clowney is crazy smart and could be making millions in any city in the world. She graduated from the University of Chicago and Yale Law School, then clerked for a federal appellate court judge. She took these credentials to Kentucky, where she had to work as an unpaid volunteer in a juvenile justice organization, and now has built a life in Arkansas. She teaches history and law and serves in the legislature. She's worked hard to address gun violence, protect reproductive health, stand up for trans kids, firefighters, teachers, and her constituents. We talked about it all, and then some. I left impressed and inspired and hope you do too. Enjoy. Representative Nicole Clowney, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thank you for having me. You have one of the most impressive resumes I've seen. Grew up in Oklahoma, went off to University of Chicago, Yale Law School, clerked for a federal appellate judge, and now in the Arkansas legislature. Can you tell me a little bit about that path and and how you ended up where you are? Sure. It's much easier to see looking backwards because I think starting at the beginning, I never would have anticipated all of the twists and turns that my my life and my career path would have taken. But looking back, I think I can make some sense of it. So I grew up in Oklahoma City, uh, the daughter of two teachers. My mom was a special ed teacher, taught at a public high school near us. And I went to public schools myself, was a proud product of Oklahoma City public schools, but knew that the best thing that I could do, I thought when I was 18, the best thing that I could do for the place that I called home was to go get the best possible education that I could. And for me, that involved going to the University of Chicago for undergrad, where I studied classics. So I immersed myself in the world of the ancient Greeks and Romans. And uh, when it was time to graduate from there, I really had kind of a moment of, do I want to continue on with my study? And do I want to live a life in academia? Or do I want to do something the way that I framed it in my mind at the time, which I've now realized wasn't entirely accurate, but at the time, do I want to do academia or do I want to do something that's going to make a real difference in the real world? Now I see how closely entwined critical thinking and particularly the humanities are in the real world world work that I was so drawn to, which when I graduated from college was law school. I wanted to go to law school. I wanted to learn about at a very basic level, kind of how to alleviate suffering, how to alleviate human suffering. Looking back on it now, my study of the humanities played a huge role in that rather than be antithetical to that. And so it led me to Yale Law School where I was lucky enough to get accepted and learn from the best of the best. But I knew that I always, despite having gone to school elsewhere, wanted to end up closer to home. I ended up finding a spouse or finding a partner who was willing to become a spouse kind of on that 
with that understanding. And so I worked for a federal judge. We ended up getting married. And then I moved to Kentucky where I started work as a, I actually had to volunteer for a while because there wasn't a job in Kentucky that was available for me. I wanted so badly to work at this nonprofit that was dedicated to children's law issues. And they just said, we would love to have you. We just don't have the funding. And I couldn't find anything, which, which seems wild. I think in a way you, you come out of law school, you come out of a prestigious clerkship and you think people are going to be really excited to hire me. When I moved to Kentucky, that was not the case. And it wasn't, it wasn't the fault of anybody, but I didn't have connections there. And so much of the work that I wanted to do just wasn't funded. So finally, I said, okay, I was, I was fortunate enough to be in a position where I said I can work for this number of months on a volunteer basis and try to prove my worth and, and get my funding together. And I did that. They allowed me to do that. And that's how I got my first real job out of my clerkship. So I worked for that nonprofit, ended up working on a grant from the Southern Poverty Law Center, designed it addressing the school to prison pipeline. And I I did that work for a while before moving to Arkansas. So it's been a long and windy road, but really I think there is a common thread through all of it that has been a core desire to do what I can where I am to lessen suffering, even if just by a little bit. And that really has been kind kind of what has driven me this whole time. So Today, I'm in the legislature and the road to get there was was similarly unexpected, but I'm finding myself driven by the same thing in the work I do today. I hadn't planned on asking this, but now I'm curious. In your study of the humanities and you taught ancient Greek and Latin at the University of Arkansas, what lessons do you think we need to draw from those periods, from those thinkers about the United States today and specifically what you're seeing on the ground in Arkansas? It's a really, really good question. And in fact, I I did teach ancient Greek and Latin, but I'm still doing it. And so one of the classes that I teach in addition to that is a Roman law class. And the parallels between what we saw in the the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire and, and a lot of the things that we're seeing now, the similarities are strong. I think there are a couple of things to take away from the study of the classics. And of course, I could speak for hours and hours on this, so I'll keep it very, very short. But I think The number one lesson that studying any civilization can teach you is the common threads that tie really all of these civilizations together. The things that drove people, the things that kept people up at night, the things that caused suffering and the things that alleviated it were the same. And I think recognizing shared humanity, whether that be across social class, across race, across gender, or across time is something that helps you view the world in a more empathetic way. So I think that is one part of it. I think another part of it is the study of history. I think now more than ever, we are seeing, I shouldn't say more than ever, more than ever that I can remember since being in this line of work, we are seeing an attack on how history is taught. There is a lot about the ancient world that is taught in a way that I constantly have to remind my students, we only have certain records because the person who is in power determines the records that exist. Right. And that is a lesson that I constantly have to reinforce. And it's one that now more than ever, we are seeing kind of on the front lines as we see state legislatures and even, you know, some national figures kind of go after particularly history curriculum in K through 12 education. I wonder, and I was a proud history major, when I read history and I teach at the university as well, I'm always struck by 
how profoundly dark and painful a lot of history is, including American history. So I'm left with two feelings. One is you can see evidence of progress, but then you can also see the same historical events or trends repeating themselves over time. When you're engaging in teaching and in the legislature, what lessons from history are you are, are you seeing in terms of the arc of the universe bending towards justice? Oh, that is a really, really great and hard question. <laughs> uh, hopefully your students are going to appreciate the fact that I'm basically yeah. <laughs> making you take a final exam in, in podcast yeah. form. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, I am... I am two things at heart. I am an optimist and I'm an organizer. And so I'm going to preface my answer with that, but it's true. It is truly the way that I see the world. The lessons that I learn are, and that I think we all can learn, are that the problems that we are facing, I just said, for instance, some version of the phrase more than ever, but really I don't mean more than ever. I mean more than ever in my very limited life experience. The problems that we are facing now are not unprecedented problems in the history of humankind. I remember I was teaching a class in my Roman law course last year, and I was just kind of laying the scene. And I said, okay, so what you need to understand, the background here is Rome had just gotten through this horrible plague, and there was an attempted overthrowing of the government. And all of my students started laughing, and I hadn't even thought about it. We had just gotten through a terrible plague and an attempted overthrowing of the government, right? And so these problems that feel so big and scary, they are big and they are scary, but they are not ours alone. They are problems that we have seen previous civilizations grapple with. And in my mind, the most effective way to, the biggest thing that we can learn, these civilizations are most successful over time when power is spread out among the most number of people, when land and resources are spread out among the biggest number of people, when more and more people have a a political voice, whatever that looks like. And I don't want to sugarcoat what ancient Rome or Greece or any of those things were. Those were civilizations that were rife with humanitarian abuses that I would never want to see repeated. But I do think that when those places are at their best is when power is not consolidated in the hands of one or two at the very top, whether that be people or families. And I think the most important lesson that we can learn is when we start to see that intense stratification of wealth, that intense divide between the haves and the have-nots, whether that be resources or power, that's when the real danger starts. And um, and and how we get through that is by pushing back at every step of the way before it gets too late. So let's move then from, from Rome to the capital in Little Rock <laughs> and talk about what it's like. I mean, you talk about sort of concentration of power and you were in a Republican supermajority state. What's it like on the grounds for the haves and the have nots <laughs> as you try to as you try to to ensure democracy continues? Yeah, perhaps it's not surprising that I am concerned with who has power and who doesn't, because power is certainly not something that is shared, at least kind of on its surface in Arkansas. And what I mean by that is all seven of our constitutional offices are held by Republicans. All four of our of our positions in the federal House of Representatives are held by Republicans. Both of our senators are Republicans. And out of our state legislature, we have 18 out of 100 who are Democrats in the House. And in the Senate, it's just about as bleak. So we are very, very outnumbered as Democrats in the Arkansas government, really from top to bottom. 
that is a very, very hard position to be in for anybody. It's especially odd in Arkansas because it's a relatively recent turn, right? I mean, you think of Arkansas and you think about a number of Democrats, particularly President Clinton, who was not very long ago, right? And the turn to this supermajority has happened within the last 10, 12 years in our state. So it happened quickly. And it happened so quickly that there was never really a time where the two parties ever had to work together. So that's not even, you know, a knock on Republicans. It's just a it's just a numbers game. I mean, the Democrats, we never had to work with Republicans until very, very recently when they became a threat. And then as soon as they were a threat, boom, they were the supermajority. So it's a it's a hard thing when kind of the institutional memory doesn't really allow for that bipartisanship that I think is desperately needed for good government. People ask me all the time, how do you do it? Like, how do you go down there and just get, you know, get your ideas tossed out again and again and again? And it's not quite that bleak. I should say my ideas do not get tossed out again and again. <laughs> but but things that are very fundamentally important to me, to who I am as a person, to the things that my family and I value at our core are not things that I share with a lot of my colleagues. And that can be hard. But for me, that is the joy of the job because I actually think, and, and I don't want to sound too Pollyanna about it, but so much of what we are fed right now is coming from, from national politics, national discourse about Democrats and Republicans. And it is the most fulfilling thing that I can do to have a conversation with somebody where I, whether it's explain an idea or or explain why I hold an idea that they understand, but they don't understand why I might hold it. If I can explain that to somebody in a way that allows them to leave a conversation feeling like, oh, this thing that I've been told is a fringe, wild, completely unreasonable belief. Actually, my colleague just explained it to me and it makes sense. That is hugely fulfilling and it does happen. Of course, I wish that it didn't need to, but it does. And similarly, I learned too. You know, I learned that um, there are a lot of colleagues who who don't know what they don't know, particularly when it comes to social issues. So, for instance, one of the things that we have seen in Arkansas over the last, I would say, four years—not alone in Arkansas, although we were sadly, a trailblazer in it is an attack on on LGBTQ kids, particularly trans kids. It became very obvious to me during the course of some testimony this past legislative session that there was a very fundamental misunderstanding about what it is to be trans. It was a bill sponsor who was presenting a bill who genuinely did not understand some very basic facts about being trans. And I truly didn't know what else to do besides just say, hey, okay, we're very heated here. We're all arguing about right and wrong. I kind of want to take a step back and I hope that nobody will find this insulting, but I was lucky enough to be around trans I had trans friends when I was in middle school without even knowing the name. Like it wasn't even on my radar yet. But I said, I was just so lucky that I had people in my life who were experiencing these things and taught me about them in real time so that I have a very good understanding about it now. And I think maybe you might be misunderstanding X, Y, and Z, 
about the issue. And that's very concerning to me. And I just want to make sure before we kind of go forward with this legislation that you understand the facts as they are. And it was just a moment of not blaming, not how dare you attack these people, even though that's a lot of what I was feeling. But it was just maybe if we can start from a place of, I'm worried that you're misunderstanding something. And I at least want to make sure that that's not true before we proceed. And it turns out that it was true. And the whole tenor of the bill and ultimately the bill itself changed. And so it's it's just a small example, but there are opportunities that present themselves working in a super minority that I do feel lucky to be in the room when they arise. Before I continue my conversation with Nicole Clowney, I want to remind you that we'll be celebrating five years and 200 episodes on September 21st. To mark this milestone, we're looking back on some of the best moments in the podcast's history. Here's a clip from my conversation with Delaware Senator Sarah McBride. Sarah pointedly described how running for the state Senate was an opportunity to remove barriers that she and millions of transgendered Americans face every day. Enjoy. I think in many ways, my interest in government and advocacy and politics stemmed from my own journey to coming out as a transgender person. When I was young, I I wasn't interested in politics. I was actually really interested in architecture. What I was thinking about and what I was really aware of is how the world interacts with people and, and the barriers that it places in front of people. Because at a young age, I was becoming aware of who I am. And in the same instant, becoming aware of the fact that there was significant prejudice and ignorance around people like me. And I saw that the world was not structured for me to not just live authentically and openly, but for, frankly, if I were to do so, for me to live a meaningful, successful life. I want to talk about some of those priorities because you are, you're working hard to help kids, reduce gun violence, improve access to behavioral health resources, so many important things. And it, and, and, and just reading about it, it feels, I can, you can feel the struggle <laughs> that you're facing on a daily basis to move those things forward. I guess one of the things I'm curious about is we just talked to Caleb Hemmer, who's a representative in Tennessee, and Tennessee is similar in that Al Gore came from Tennessee and has quickly changed. I think you're playing in a, a vital role in helping folks understand issues around trans kids and other issues that they didn't have an understanding of. What do you think the Democratic Party needs to understand about places like Arkansas if we want to get back to being it to be competitive and maybe even a Democratic state again? It's a great question. It's a great question because I think that it can be very easy to get caught up in, for lack of a better word, kind of purity tests when it comes to progressive politicians. So in Arkansas, it's very interesting because we are a very independently minded state. Our state legislature is very, very skewed red. When you look at statewide elections for, say, a gubernatorial candidate, it's it's a little bit more, you know, while our legislature is about 2575, the reality on the ground in terms of party breakdown for a, a race like that is something like 35 to 40% Democrats. But where you really see the hold of progressive ideas is in the ballot initiative process, which is something that is pretty strong in Arkansas. 
So Arkansas passes relatively consistently progressive ideas on the ballot, yet continues to elect more and more Republicans rather than Democrats. And I think that part of the problem is understanding what a Democrat is and maybe trying to to find a balance between having a national story, this is what Democrats stand for, this is who Democrats are, while also allowing space for a state like Arkansas to have an Arkansas Democrat that may look a little bit different than a California Democrat or even a Tennessee Democrat, right? And our ballot process shows us that we are not opposed to progressive ideas, but we are very afraid of the word Democrat. We are not afraid to pass, for instance, medical marijuana, which passed overwhelmingly on our ballot. We are not afraid to pass a minimum wage, which passed overwhelmingly on our ballot. But I can't imagine any Democratic candidate who could have won the same support as those ideas did. Because the party in our state, I think, is just a little bit tainted. The name Democrat remains a little bit scary to some voters still. Now, of course, the blame for that falls on a whole lot of feet, but Democrats are certainly partly to blame. I think that it can be very easy to get completely outraged, as I find myself all the time, with all of these attacks on social issues, whether it be like trans kids, like I mentioned, completely outrageous to me, completely outrageous to me, just the attack on people's humanities, inexcusable. But we also have to be able to talk about a whole host of other things that are going to matter to people and not let ourselves, and this is my personal challenge, not let ourselves take what almost can feel like bait sometimes that's being dangled before us to distract from real issues. All of these things are real and impact people's lives that I've mentioned. Things that aren't real, school librarians handing out pornographic materials, right? And so all of a sudden, instead of us talking about how Arkansas just passed the most sweeping public education reform in the country, that we created the biggest voucher program in the country. In Arkansas now, more than in any other state, our public money will be used to pay private schools. But instead of talking about that, we spend so much time responding to accusations of things that aren't happening at all. And we have to respond to them. Our libraries are under attack. I don't know what the alternative is, But it is, we have got to find a way, we have got to find a way to, even when we're in the super minority, continue to fight for things rather than constantly taking the bait to fight against them. And so here's one example. Arkansas Democrats back at the beginning of this legislative session said, everybody in Arkansas pretty much is for teacher pay increases. We are one of the worst in the country. Teachers are leaving the profession at these unprecedented rates. We need to make teaching a profession that is respected, that is sustainable, that is valued. We need to show our teachers that we value them. And so we introduced a bill that would have raised our teacher pay to a starting salary of $50,000. It was overwhelmingly popular. I mean, people from across all political parties were supportive of it. 
had a huge, huge reception. It ended up actually being adopted in the governor's ultimate education overhaul plan. She included a raise to $50,000. Now, was that because the Democrats had done it? I'm not going to say that, but I am saying that we were out first with an idea that was hugely popular. And that's what we have to continue doing time and time again, because otherwise we are just going to find ourselves kind of on the forefront of these other battles that where we're always on the defense and where most people don't really see them impacting their lives on a day-to-day basis. We've got to find those things. We've got to say, Democrats are here. We're going to fight for you on them. And I think that, that that's step one. I'll also say though, that one challenge that I continually, I, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to do the worst possible thing probably. And just answer your question with another question, which is something I really struggle with. I think one of the hardest things for Democrats right now is that so much of what we want to do requires patience. And when I say patience, I mean waiting for long-term results. Politicians, I think, are inherently very bad at that, right? Because at least in Arkansas, I'm up every two years for re-election. So I could have a grand plan that's going to take 20 years to start to see dividends. And so it's I am going to have to put aside my ego, my political career, right? All of that and say, you know what? Whether or not anybody knows that this thing that we did ultimately paid off, it's going to work. And so we have to do it anyway. But we are so obsessed with re-election. And when I say we, I mean all politicians, it's not Arkansas specific, that I, I, I worry a little bit about how to communicate long-term progress. The other big thing that the governor did this last legislative session was a, it wasn't just the governor, it was our attorney general as well. There was a huge criminal justice overhaul. And there were some very good things that were in in the legislation, some kind of mental health needs are going to be addressed a little bit better. Substance use will be addressed a little bit better. But by and large, the thrust of this bill was we are going to put more people in prison for longer. It was just harsher sentences, and you're going to have to serve out more of the sentence that you're given. That doesn't work. We know that it doesn't work. We have seen data over and over and over again that says those are not deterrents to crime. Longer sentences do not reduce crime. The threat of longer sentences don't reduce recidivism. Longer sentences, in fact, increase recidivism. But it feels very good and it feels very tough on crime to say, look, we increase the sentence from this to this, therefore there will be fewer criminals on your streets. It's much harder to say, look, We invested in what we all know is the root cause of crime, the actual predictor of crime, poverty. We invested in things that will lower poverty so that however many years down the line, 20, 30 years down the line, we can look back and see, look, once we really started to make sure all of our kids were going to school fed, once we took these stressors out of these families' lives so that parents could parent the way that they want to, That's when we started to see people being raised who were committing less crime. That story is very hard to tell. And I think that is a thing that keeps me very worried right now. How do we tell a story that involves long, complicated results in a way that gives people the patience and the energy and the excitement about investing in the things that will lead to those results? Yeah, I agree. I think it's a fundamental challenge. In Democratic-led states like California, where I am, 
having making the smart long-term investment over the short-term win chasing headlines is is critical because otherwise no business no family would would invest all in all is successful by just having short-term thinking (laughs) and the same goes for societies and government that's right that's right and you know we have we have these policies now that are going to kind of on the flip side of that do long-term damage if they are kept out right if our if our public schools no longer exist or exist in a very very watered down form in 20 years the people who made all of those decisions are long gone from office right they won't have to pay the political repercussions of that and so i think to the extent that that party plays a role in terms of messaging even though those particular people will not any longer be in office and they may not have to pay political repercussions. I think it is very important from a, you know, kind of you asked about messaging from a messaging standpoint that Democrats remember what it is that got us here. If here is the decline of public schools or, or whatever it is, you know, and we have to continue to tell that story. If we can't do it on the front end in a way that engages people, we have to remember, and maybe this goes back to my history brain, but we have to remember what happened in the decade leading up to where we are now to be able to start to turn it around. And so those are the things that I think about as I look at where Arkansas is, because I genuinely believe that we are at our lowest point right now in terms of this super minority, super majority imbalance. I think we're going to start to see it swing a little bit back towards the center. And I am hopeful that we can start to start to tell those stories and make corrections before it's too late. So hopefully as you as you've now hit bottom in terms of in terms of the the super uh, minority status and are climbing up. I mean, how do you think about what your priorities are when you're in the super minority? What you can get done for the people of your district and your state when you go down to Little Rock? Yeah, that's a it's a really good and tough question and there are a few different categories of things that I look at when I think about what to fight for each legislative session. You know, meet, we meet for about three months every two years. So our time frame is incredibly compact and you've got to make really good decisions, smart decisions about what it is you want to spend that time doing. I actually look at it. I, I like to think of myself as having, you know, kind of, I guess I maybe would say three different buckets of work that I do. The first is 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 simple and would probably not be very interesting to anybody to listen to, but it's just, you know, what are where are there small little code changes that need to be made, you know, problems that have come up over the course of the two years that constituents have brought to me and say this one little thing is causing me a, a problem, whether it's with my business or my personal life. And how can we fix those things? The second is what are the things that are gonna have a bigger impact, but that are not politically charged? Every year, I would say I take on probably one of those. So the first year that I was in office, I fought for firefighters who had gotten cancer in the line of duty. So firefighters who had gotten sick from breathing in carcinogens that, of course, are, you know, litter all of our homes. And and, and I fought for a bill that would have allowed them, that did allow them to take six months of sick leave to care for themselves, to spend time with their families because they didn't have any additional time off, even though that sickness was caused in the line of duty. It seems like something that would be pretty straightforward. It was very hard. There was a lot of pushback from a lot of municipalities who were worried about what that was going to do to their numbers and all of it, but we got it done because it's 
it matters. It's big, but it's firefighters. And there really aren't a big, there is not yet a large anti-first responder contingent, right? And so that was something that I thought, okay, we can get this done. I've also, this past session, I did a lot of work on opioid use. Arkansas is consistently as one of the worst states in the country when it comes to opioid abuse. However, our numbers when it comes to death rates have not historically been accurately reported. That's a big issue because it means that, A, we don't really have a clear picture of what's killing our Kansans, which is huge. But also there is a big amount of federal funding that's available based on your death rates due to opioid overdoses. Well, we didn't know what those rates were in Arkansas because we weren't keeping track. We weren't keeping track for reasons that are pretty much just logistical. And so I filed a bill to help address that. That bill arose from a group of legislators, a group of bipartisan legislators who were meeting and talking with folks who wanted to help address mental health and substance use. And a doctor came to us and told us about the problem. And then I just kind of picked up the ball and ran with it. But but everybody was bought in from the beginning because it was a group of bipartisan legislators. So so, so that's where kind of the, the productive policymaking work can be done when you're in the super minority. But I think the other job of a super minority legislator is to bring forward things that you know full well are not going to pass. Um, and there is value in a conversation. There is value in education. And there is value, frankly, in fighting for people who nobody else is fighting for. And that may sound frustrating or futile, but it is such important work that I feel very lucky to be able to do. So one of the things that we're facing in Arkansas right now, again, as many places in this country are, is reproductive health, right? So in Arkansas, we had a full abortion ban that went into effect the moment that the Dobbs decision came down. And so this past legislative session, I filed a bill that would have allowed for an exception in the case of a baby who has been diagnosed with a lethal fetal anomaly. In other words, this baby has been, this mother or parents have been told this baby is not going to survive. It's impossible for this baby to survive outside of the womb. In most instances, doctors would allow for early delivery of that baby, but in Arkansas, that would be considered an abortion. And so I filed that bill knowing that it would have huge opposition from all of our very vocal pro-life groups here, but also knowing that that bill and that exception has the huge support of a majority of actual Arkansans. The polling is very clear on this. Arkansans do not want a full ban. They don't. What Arkansans want is something that is much more in line with I think what a majority of Americans want, which is limitations with some exceptions in cases of rape, in cases of incest, in cases of of things like I'm talking about with the diagnoses. But I think it was really important. We we sat down, we had doctors, we had genetic counselors, we had mothers all sitting down, just telling their stories, explaining why this was necessary, knowing that it wasn't going to become law, but also knowing that this is public record. Our Kansans are watching. We know what our Kansans are thinking. And we want to educate not only legislators, but all of the rest of the state who's watching so that they can see what it is that's being voted on day in and day out. That was an important battle, even though we knew we were going to lose it. We fought it. So, you know, you kind of have to choose those things. I would say the other the other issue where 
I will consistently file legislation that I know will likely not pass. And I will continue to do it until it does pass. <laughs> it does have to do with gun violence prevention. It is incredibly disheartening to see the power that special interest groups have in a number of areas. But perhaps the most disheartening for me has been in reasonable gun laws. I have never seen any lobby as powerful as the gun manufacturing lobby when it comes to squashing any effort to reasonably address gun violence. I filed a bill, gosh, I guess it was my first session in 2019 that would have, it was just it was just to mirror the federal law. So under federal law, you're not allowed to purchase or possess a firearm if you have a misdemeanor conviction of domestic violence. In Arkansas, there's no law to mirror that, which means that a, an Arkansas, the Fayetteville, where I'm from, the Fayetteville police officer could walk into a situation, know that somebody has a gun in violation of federal law. They say, I know you have this conviction. You have a gun. That's in violation of federal law. But because this is not a federal officer, that officer would not be able to do anything about it. No mechanism to enforce that federal law. In Arkansas, at the time, the number, I don't know if this is still true, but when I ran the bill, the number one cause of death for police officers was shootings. And the number one scenario that shootings happened was responding to domestic disturbance calls. So this was a bill that was co-sponsored by a Republican former captain of the Arkansas State Police to keep everybody safe. And it made it through committee, no problem. But in between the day there's they're they're back to back in days. So overnight, it was literally overnight, the NRA got word that this bill was out there and shut it all down. So the next day I had lost all of my votes for truly no other reason. There was no more information. Nobody had changed their mind. It was genuinely, we got a call from the NRA. We're toast if we vote for this. Sorry. And that has been that has been very, very hard. It's a hard lesson to learn. Certainly didn't take it personally, but it is a hard lesson to learn kind of just the power of those groups who genuinely do not know or care about our state yet are somehow pulling the strings from so far away. So, you know, there are, there are things in the minority that you can continue to push on because they need to be heard. There are things that you can actually accomplish. And I think the way I view my role is that I owe it to my district to try to do a little bit of both. And I think doing doing just one or the other would be a disservice. And finding that balance is tricky, but something that I try very hard to achieve. That's an astounding story <laughs> of, of how, unfortunately, politics overcomes just common sense policy. I want to thank you for the work that you do. We love having you in New Deal. Maybe we can have a special panel discussion on parallels of Roman law and, and U.S. law in 2023 at the next New Deal conference. It's been wonderful talking with you today, and thank you for the work you do. I, with with your background, you could have easily opted out of so many of these battles, and the fact that you've thrown yourself in is is, is just an amazing testament to you. Well, thank you so much. I'm lucky to be able to do it and to be inspired by people from all around the country thanks to the work that you all do. So thank you very much for having me. Thank you. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. 
we encourage you to bring honor to public service. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.